Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 429 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interviewed Bennett Tyler and Nick Mazzucola of Bomb Shelter Games and asked them about the design and development of their submarine-based Metroidvania exploration game, Depths of Sanity. Bit of housekeeping before I delve a little bit of a preview about what you're about to hear. One of the guests unfortunately had some feedback issues, and audio feedback that is. And I've had to spend a lot of time uh, filtering that out. So it does sound somewhat muffled in case in a, lo- in a lot of sections of this podcast, for which I apologise. I completely understand that uh, if you can't listen to it, that's fine. It's a bit of a shame because the discussion was fascinating, as it normally is, always is. This particular one about a game that delivers story in piecemeal aspects as the player moves through the depths of the sea is quite a fascinating one. We also talk about how to give a player a sense of purpose and indeed know where they are at all times. We do expand on that as well because that's the thing about Metroidvania or action-adventure exploration games is if you don't give a player a sense of purpose, then they just wander around aimlessly and that then they just bounce off and go on to something else. So we talk about how to encourage the player to become engaged with what they're doing and what they're seeing. So if you can, you know, burrow through the audio issues and I appreciate your patience, then please do listen. Of course, in the future, if I get something like that happening again, I will let the guests know that we're going to have to stop recording until they fix it. Because, yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to go through this again. Anyway, uh, without uh, further ado, let's listen to me from the relatively recent past talk to Bennett and Nick. Chris, take it away. Hello, Bennett and Nick. Hi there. Hi, how's it going? I'm well, thank you very much. Could you tell us in the order of Bennett and Nick, tell us what you both do and who you are? Yeah, um, so my name is Bennett. I am one of the co-founders and the um, artist for Bomb Shelter Games. We've thrown around a couple of titles in the past, but all of the visuals come from me. 
Um, and I'm Nick. Uh, I was the writer on Depths of Sanity, and I joined Bomb Shelter about midway through development. Right. Okay. So, and again, in order of Ben and Nick, that's what we're going to do this from now on, everyone. How do you do making a start making video games? So, uh, this is Bennett again, and um, so I got my start making video games when uh, a friend of mine from uh, high school, well, childhood really, approached us, uh, a couple of our, our friends, and were like, hey, you want to you make games? This was more than 10 years ago, it's probably like 12 or 13 years ago, before, like, you can go to college for game design now, this was before there were, like, dedicated um majors and stuff for that and he was we were trying to just kind of like figure out how to make a game how to break into the space um we started with an overly ambitious project we tried to make this super in-depth story driven uh long form multi-level game that sat on the shelf forever and we made a little mobile game um to get our kind of feet wet so that's really kind (laughs) of how we started um overly ambitious coming back down to earth and eventually um putting together a couple of things learning how to make games and um really that's kind of kind of how we started we just did that and, and sometimes in an indie space that's that's all you, what you have to do you just got to start we got lucky because we had a bunch of people who had a bunch of different talents that meshed together in a way that was very conducive for video game design design coding art the whole like everybody kind of brought their own piece uh and on my end so i was a freelance writer for a while me and bennett knew each other from back in college um i was working with a uh like a theater group actually doing plays and stuff and bennett hit me up uh, at one point to be like hey uh uh you know i know you can write uh, i always liked your stuff um, and you're super into horror and you know video games more than the vast majority of the people I know. So would you be interested in actually tackling Depp's uh, story now that we're at the point where like this thing needs a, a full-on narrative? So that's how I kind of got my start with the team. What was even that narrative game? I don't even know that one. Oh, yeah. No, it was a... Uh, <laughs> we we were putting together like this zombie game that was going to be like it... Like some blend of like maybe turned like a, a point and click adventure but it was also side scrolling it was supposed to be like less combat focused we wrote like a whole we we fleshed out a bunch of characters we got way too even, even this summary i'm like this is not gonna hang together but <laughs> no no but we eventually did put together a long form story driven uh very deep game it just took us about six years of you know figuring stuff out before we could tackle it okay next question and again both of you could answer this as the responsible to the studio or individually it's entirely up to you but here it is as creators what are your biggest influences that's a that's a very good question um i know from the games standpoint um we had i mean like metroidvania is a very deep um it's super deep genre um i think axiom verge um it was one of the like the sort of core metroidvania inspirations in terms of some of the abilities you'll see in the game um as well as just like uh even some of the art style um i from an art style standpoint um i have always loved pixel art um i, I mean i grew up on 
Uh, the NES, Super NES, well, actually, I, I was a Genesis uh, gamer, so I grew up on like Sonic, stuff like that. I started, I, I remember the first pixel art ever doing was editing um, Sonic sprites, which is uh, some weeb cred that I probably uh, should be embarrassed about, but whatever. <laughs> uh, I'm not. Uh, a little bit, maybe, but regardless, um, I, I like, I, I really like retro pixel art aesthetic um i don't think there are i i have trouble like pinpointing specific creators or anything like that um but really like retro stuff really kind of like gets me going and i like trying to do updated retro art is is a lot of fun um on the story side uh i mean clearly the game has a lot of lovecraftian inspiration but we wanted to avoid um Cthulhu shows up in way too many things these days. Like I appreciate, I appreciate the mythos. I appreciate the overarching atmosphere. Like that, that was kind of one of the things that inspired the story side is having that feeling without actually like pulling directly from mythos and kind of creating our own thing. Like I still would argue that the most successful video game Lovecraft adaption is Bloodborne in terms of actually like committing to the, you know, the kind of tone and source material. Um, but that played into a lot. And then weirdly, I can't get into why right now. Uh, one of the few overlaps between me and Bennett in, in games that we love was Spec Ops the line in terms of how sort of the story gets structured, even though I would never hold myself up to the writing of Spec Ops. Like, but uh, but like in terms of there's a, if you play Depths, there's a very significant mid-game change where things go from like kind of supernaturally to much weirder and darker and that's something that we kind of wanted to hold on to okay next question what video game developer do you admire most and why oh that's a that's a tough question for me just because i uh well i guess i could get into like studios it's it's tough to pick like honestly because yeah any any sort of like triple a or even like double a studio they it's it's really tough to like hit your wagon to one and be like yeah i'm gonna endorse everything that they do and everything that they make ah man it's a, like i'm gonna just punt this to nick because <laughs> i uh i can't think of anything outright um i ah, wait who nah i don't know it, we can come back i agree let you stew you. over it but uh Nick, come on! Have you, have you got something? You don't actually. You know what? You don't have to come up with an answer. You know, you could be magnanimous and say, "I don't know, everyone." But anyway, please. <laughs> Everyone's inspirational. No, I, I get, I get uh, where you're coming from because I'm even like, "All right, I like Stephen King, but he's also written some garbage." So it's like, there's no, there's nobody that I'm gonna like. I'm like, oh, who, who's consistently like? I mean, and even a lot of my favorites are gone now, which is unfortunate. Um. Uh, I'll you know what I'm gonna give a, I'll give a weird shout out to like I guess they're a double A developer, but I have liked every one of their games and they've just kind of been trucking along. Um, Frogwares make these Sherlock Holmes a, a games that I love as like a mystery person that are like shockingly good. They made this other game, The Sinking City, which I think got a little bit more notoriety, but like they're just like plugging along, doing something that I find pretty interesting. Like they actually like commit to like have to investigate and put things together rather than pixel hunts which a lot of that kind of genre hasn't done for me in a while i mean 
in the totality of games, like most of my favorites are from like studios that aren't gone now, everything Deus Ex, Silent Hill 2, whatever. But uh, in terms of a developer that for me is consistently hit for the last few years, them. Hmm. Uh, Benny, have you got an answer for us now? Come on, mate. You can do it. We believe in you. Uh, I'll shout out Indie Stone. Um, they're the developers behind Project Zomboid. I, I like picked this game up over the summer. It's 10 years old. It's in early access still, and they're still just plugging away making this game and making substantial improvements enough for it to see a spike in users that included myself um nine years into their development which is i like that's almost God, doing games as a service before <laughs> like corporate america caught on to games as a service is the new way to do games like everybody does this now as like as like a subscription um so i don't I like i like to see people just passionate about doing doing the work right so i don't know they're pretty really, cool really we, we were... inspired by dwarf fortress but uh, yeah Oh, that's another. I think that's yeah. That's directly below them in in my list here. But there, there you go. They, uh, and they put it. How long have they, they've been doing it for? Like thirty years, right? Twenty. 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 Okay. 20. okay. Still. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, so that that caliber is uh, is admirable. I worked, we did. We made Deficiency for six years, and I'm already. Right, uh, oof. we were in early access for two of those years, and I can't imagine being <laughs> early access that long. <laughs> no, oh no, thank you. <clears throat> Last question in the first half. Here it comes. It's less painful, or may not be. I don't know. Here we go. <laughs> I have to ask this. Here we go. What are you playing right now? Project Zomboid. Um, I am still playing Project Zomboid. I can't put it down. Um, and uh. That is, I, I don't think I'm playing much new, though um, I did get into a little bit of multiplayer. Um, and this is I, one of the only newer games that I've been playing recently. Spider Heck. It is this platforming, like, combat game where you're spiders and you, like, fly around on webs. It's the most ridiculous, like, four-player fun that I've had in a very long time. Like... Waking up my life, my wife laughing, uh, my lungs <laughs> to bursting. Basically, I don't. That's not a phrase, but laughing pretty hard. You know what I mean. Um. So yeah, that those two. What about you? Nick? I, so I, you at the moment? apologies. I'm like I'm like catching up on the AAA stuff. I had twins a few months ago, so I'm <laughs> yeah, just my gaming is playing like dad. Yeah. Right. Speaking of which, I'm playing God of War Ragnarok. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which as somebody who didn't like the reboot i'm shocked at how much i liked the sequel i'm having a blast and uh, a plague tale requiem which has triple a production values but it's still a much smaller studio and they're like competing punching way above their weight um are the two ones i've been kind of like finally catching up on post christmas well that's the first half over well done <laughs> let's uh let's now move on to the second half of the show where we delve deep hey Never mind. Perfect. Into into depths of sanity.
So, either of you could answer this, and, and all these questions actually, I'll let you sort of chip in as you see fit. But before we delve into depth of sanity, we need to know what it is. So please tell us in your own words what you believe depth of sanity is. I'm assuming Nick's pointing to me, um, but I'm in a different point of screen. Uh, but regardless, uh, so depth of sanity is uh, an underwater Metroidvania. That's the quickest and easiest way to describe it. Um, the more kind of elongated version of that is because it's an underwater Metroidvania, it plays quite a bit differently from your traditional Metroidvania. Instead of jumping, double jumping, and a lot of platforming for your traversal puzzles and exploration, everything is done in a submarine uh, that has 360 degrees of uh, movement on the 2D screen. Um, so we have a variety of different tools um, for both combat and traversal that you'll unlock as you go deeper and deeper uncovering um the mystery and the story that i'm going to pitch it to nick to talk about <laughs> sounds good uh and the the story for the game um it takes place uh in the mid 90s and is actually based on a real thing that happened called the bloop where every oceanographer across the world picked up a massive vibration at the bottom of the ocean uh, and up until last year nobody actually knew what it was but this takes place in the 90s. Um, a ship is sent down to investigate what it is. They don't come back. And you take control as Commander Abe Douglas, the guy who assembled its crew, who makes it his job to go find them and bring them home. Uh, and what starts as uh, a, a slightly horror-tinged game with like some like uh, mythological elements very quickly spirals into something much, much weirder and grosser by the end of it. <laughs> so, here's the first design question for you. The undersea environment in Depths of Sanity encourages the reliance on related hazard as major obstacles. One fed into the other. That's what I drew from the experience of playing through. How have you found designing those? Those Because it starts quite gentle because you're, you're up on the coral reef and then as you go deeper, it becomes more and more, we say, erratic. How have you found, how did you find designing those relatively feasible natural hazards? So, uh, from a from a visual perspective or more from the actual like design and mechanics perspective as they like they changed? I think it's the latter. That's what I'm really focusing on because it does impact on how the player experiences it and it also helps with the build of dread. Sorry, Nick. <laughs> no, I, so it's um, it's a it's a great question, and I think it's it's partially. Um, I mean, it's it's really at the end of the day, I think it it breaks down into we like adding systems to our systems, if that makes sense. Instead of looking at one weapon as like as a thing, um, and you use it to solve this type of puzzle, uh. You, Taking those weapons and compounding their uses um, allows us to kind of expand the, the amount of puzzles that you can explore. You can't offer that in the beginning of the game because you don't have all of the tools, but you also don't want to offer that. You don't want to pose that in the beginning of the game uh, because the player doesn't have as much skill. The we We know the controls themselves do take a little bit of adjusting and getting used to but they they are pretty tight once you do uh we figured that out by having players play the game live early on in development 
Um, and I think that helped in doing so, like watching players interact with different puzzles and different pieces. A lot of the um, early game we we had available early on for people to try out. Um, that was the kind of the some of the puzzles they would breeze through. But some of the whenever we would develop or have an idea for a new move, whether it's the tow cable or like the forward dash, uh, some of the later like traversal specific um, tools, we would take a demo build, just like a vertical slice, and we would use things like a bunch of currents or uh, the turtles or what have you. We kind of throw them into a just a working slice no story, no nothing. We're not trying to sell you the game at this point. Um, we took a lot of these builds to, there are a bunch of small indie programs out in, uh, we were based in Boston at the time, uh, like Boston Indies, um, Mass Digi, um, blanking on another one, but there was a third. We'd go to these events pretty regularly and we'd roll out these builds with these different mechanics and we'd have people try them so we could see players in kind of real time giving like trying out both these puzzles and 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 the tools uh so that when we go in to actually put together especially the later game stuff we're not going in completely blind like i hope they understand what we mean when we do this uh versus that because like the first iteration of the game i i remember there was a switch you'd, you'd hit a thing and we'd have a dialogue uh, appear on the screen that would say somewhere something moved and like, <laughs> it was it like, it, it was just, uh, the game was in development for six years. And a lot of that was iterating on a lot of those things to make sure we were getting away from that and getting towards stuff that made a little more um, sense and kind of combined everything that we were building in a, uh, in a nice way. I hope that answered the question. I might've <laughs> just danced around it though. No, it's fine. I, 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 I remember you also like a big stressor for Bennett's as we were getting through development is like at a certain point, uh, you need switches in some form. It's early in certain early levels. Like there's one, uh, there's one area set in a sunken ship graveyard. So there's some ships that still have some functioning parts. Okay. We'll buy this. But later on, we're like, we need something that functionally acts as a switch, but you are in a, uh, biome that is nothing but the decayed corpses of rotting whales. So what is that going to be Bennett? And, like, trying to figure out art solutions for, like, this puzzle still needs to work. The mechanics still need to be kind of mirror each other. But, like, okay, what are we going to make this look like? And it eventually, he came up with great solutions to all of it. But, but like, a major decision we made towards the end of development when um, we were doing the final chapter, it was originally going to be the longest one. And we wound up cutting it in half uh, for two reasons. One... Uh, pacing wise, we were like, at this point, we'd, we'd all been playing a lot of games that were way too long. And we were like, if, you, if you're if you here and you want to rush to the end, let's make it so that you can just kind of go if you want to explore more, you can. But B, we were literally running out of like ways to to like, okay, things, you know, with no spoilers get so far removed from regular reality. We were like, I don't know how to make more mechanics out of this without it just not making sense to the player is kind of a situation we wound up in. So, like, some of it was, like, obviously Bennett finding creative loopholes, but also us knowing when to throw in the towel and be like, all right, I think we've come to the end of what we can do with this. <laughs> Eventually, you're almost asking your players to break the tools you've built in order to 
beat some of these puzzles, which is like, let speedrunners do that down the road. That's not, that's not for like, that's not what we're, that's not how Metroidvania, well, actually, I mean, I did like Metroid Dread has some, some items that like, in order to get, you're like, I, I don't think I have the, the, it, the, like the macros built in to be able to do that that quick. <laughs> Trust me, it gets way worse with age. Just, there are some games that go, well, that's nice, but I can't do that anymore. <laughs> yep. So, next question. Then. Knowing where you are in depth of sanity is really, really important. Can you talk us through how you provided navigation aids to the player without actually giving too much away? I think this one's for me. Uh, Go for it. <laughs> so I, um, so like I, I mentioned when I introduced myself, I did all of the artwork for the game. Um, I drew every pixel, I drew every animation, and I placed every single environmental tile in all six worlds. Um, so while doing so, I was trying to remain conscious of I basically periodically zoom out and try to make sure that when I look at the each level's map, I'm keeping the majority of the, the areas, if their shapes are similar, the visuals inside them are, are different. If the shapes are different, you're trying to give a little bit of character and a little bit of just something different in especially areas of importance. You can't do this in every world. World 5, World 4, they're so big getting in there and making every single thing look different would require you to, um, to, to make specific art assets for everything. And at a, as an indie studio with one artist, it's not something that we can, we can do. Um, but I think a very good example of kind of my philosophy around it is I, I kept in mind um, in Super Metroid, I think it's um, Ridley's Lair. It's got that very specific just Ridley, like his the rendition of his face in the environment that you can't reach. Your brain clocks it. You go on with your day. You get double jump, and then eventually you like that thing that I saw. It, it like it like made an impression. So I tried to keep that in mind whenever we had um, important areas. It's generally speaking, you do have your mini map. So like, there's a your general location is going to be something you remember. But there are these large cavernous sort of areas where they're you're not near any of the external walls so trying to provide some sort of conscious landmark for um each like any sort of important area and an area that you're going to have to clock an area that you're going to have to inspect something that kind of catches your eye i think the best example of this is in world three um there is a uh corridor that leads back up to to escape after you uh you finish the world uh, originally it was very just sort of nondescript it looked like pretty much the rest of the level when we put together the final patch um to release the game fully i jumped back into the tiles for that map i added a specific different type of tile they were like ice little icicles and i put them kind of leading in that area and up into that area so now um, world six which has these like it has like four or five different doors that lead out into like kind of all different kind of octopus areas um no octopuses in in them just, just mean oct as an octopus um each 
entrance is a little bit different. It uses a so that way you can just clock if if you're paying attention to the environment, you can figure out like, oh, I went through this door and I came out. I came out the ice door, but I went in the temple door. I went in the rock door, but I came out the the uh, the wood door. Um, so it just helps you keep um, keep yourself in the environment a little bit. So all of that was super conscious while I was placing it to make sure that you could navigate. I myself am incredibly directionally challenged. I don't know my right from left. <laughs> um, on most time, like there's a sixty percent chance I'm going to get it wrong, and. Um, I uh I like I can't play Hollow Knight, not because I can't beat the bosses. I'm just lost. I literally have nowhere to go. No, no idea where to go. It's the part where you're like, oh, that's where the whole game opens up. You go wherever you want. I'm like, I I lost. <laughs> so it's very important to me that players weren't lost. Okay. Next question then. The creatures or the beings, I'm gonna say, in the depths of sanity, what are their own way of launching attacks or not against the player? Or their sub, I should say, not themselves, of course. How did you design each kind of interaction? And did they reflect the environmental hazards we spoke about at the beginning? So the enemy creation is kind of funny, um, especially early on. Um, essentially, <laughs> uh, the um, the dev at the time, he doesn't work with us anymore, but Owen... Um, who was who was working with us at the time? He'd basically be like, "Okay, this one's a shark." I'm like, "What does it do?" Or like, well, "Yeah, just like attack you." I'm like, "All right, I'll draw a shark." And eventually, we ran out of sea creatures. Um, and but that's why, like, we also like you can only have so many. Like the shark and the and the swordfish, they're essentially the same um, enemy pattern, except the swordfish charges you. Um, but like a lot of our initial enemy designs just kind of stemmed from that. They were like, well, this thing is a thing that moves towards you. This is a thing that moves back and forth. This is a thing that dashes at you quickly. This is a thing that shoots at you. This is a thing that like just like pursues you and shoots. So I would essentially just get, um, I, I would often just get a list of moves from, uh, the <laughs> designer would be like, yeah, it, it's gonna shoot. It's gonna, it's gonna like swim around. It's gonna track you, but it's not gonna follow you. But it is gonna shoot at you. And I would essentially try to be like, all right, what kind of animal underwater shoots? There's a thing called a pistol shrimp. Fortunately, later in development, he'd usually <laughs> include the animal. He's like, it's a pistol shrimp. And then I can be like, dude, this you're introducing this enemy in level five. It can't be a pistol shrimp, man. It's gotta be something different. So that's where the uh, that's where the weird stuff starts to come in, which was a lot easier for me because now I'm not just like looking up and drawing fish. I learned so much marine biology making this game because of that. Um, but the uh, the process was um, in terms of like figuring out sea creatures to represent um, these enemies. That was the final thought. Um, that we put into it. The first and foremost, the most important thing was how they were going to function. Um, and, and kind of coupled with that, it was very important to us. The majority, like anytime we added a new enemy, it added something new to the game. It was different than another enemy. Instead of just adding a bunch of fish that had the same sort of movement pattern or same exact, like kind of like they all shot at you from a different space. We wanted every enemy to be functionally different. Um, and then visually different to accompany it. 
So, so with that, um, so two of the things that I thought were interesting about that, because these were kind of design struggles. So one of them regarding the enemies that took a while, and I know you guys were going back and forth on, was, um, what's the way of putting this? Uh, making it so that enemies weren't assholes off screen, because you have a weird problem when you, because the whole game has 360 degrees of movement, a lot of things had to get redesigned so that you weren't getting, particularly like later in the game when you have things that can fire at you, fire at you from a distance or track you for a certain amount of time that you weren't taking pot, getting pot shots, taking at you from things that you couldn't absorb. So I know that there was a lot of that went into like, particularly in the early part of the game, most enemies can't hurt you unless like they get right up to you to like try and train you for how to deal with later on when you're going to really need to be able to strafe around things in the distance. And then there was a lot of discussion between me and Bennett of like, as the story gets weirder, how do we start leaking in the weirder enemies? Like obviously world six, the the finale is going to have all the craziness level, uh, level five will have a decent amount, but like, okay. um, In level four, mild spoiler, there's a, there's a, there's the Nautilus, which is this docile thing throughout the whole game. And at level four, we introduce a version that rips out of its shell and mutates and comes after you in a room full of them. And like trying to at least come up with a few interesting moments to like uh, make sure the player's noticing the transition. Obviously, there's some significantly weirder stuff, but like so that like they're catching like, okay, things have gotten worse. Now they're now like even the normal basic things I've been taking for granted are starting to kind of unravel uh, enemy wise. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember if there's a mantis shrimp, but if it was, everything would die. So it's probably for the <laughs> we didn't, we didn't have the mantis shrimp. Um, I uh, we we went with the pistol shrimp in, instead, um, and that was partially because I um didn't want to figure out what the color palette for a mantis shrimp would have to be. All of them, all of them. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, that's too many colors to animate. I'm one guy. I want to talk about the story now. Um, the story is slowly revealed to you in this piecemeal. You get this sort of clues about who's interacting with what, who's, who's you know, the crew, dysfunctional crew <laughs> that are just thrown together. And, and you're just like, clearly these people should be nowhere near each other, let alone in, in the sea. Trapped but in a sub. <laughs> trapped in a submarine. Um, there's a reason that uh, many submarine people have psychology tests. But the point being... I just want to ask you, how have you found designing it, or more to the point, writing it and creating it and crafting the story in such a way, knowing that the player is not simply turning pages? They are actually finding, they might turn to page 7, then go back, and then page 98, and then go back to 63. How have you found (laughs) designing that, knowing that the player is getting the piece, getting the, the puzzle not whole? It's not in a nice ordered fashion. It's all over the place. How did you find delivering that? That's a that's a, that's a great question because that was like the majority of the challenge with writing the game was. <laughs> so when I joined, they had the the basic setup and like some of the some of the areas planned out, a few of the bosses, and not much else. Like like there was a crew. There, the crew didn't have names. They didn't have any backstory or anything, and we just kind of had aid. So a lot of the early work was A, outline the full story, but B, then like 
luckily we have the the psychiatrist framing the fact that it's in that like that's the framing of the game is actually very helpful because i go okay i know these cutscenes in between when you kind of make big progress are like my landmarks for the bare skeleton of the story and there are a few other main moments that the player has to see in order to like get to the end of this and be like okay I had an enjoyable time. I kind of understood what happened, but everything beyond that needs to be able to be seen kind of in any order. So a lot of it was breaking out like, okay, once we have these main specific moments, um, anything else that's interesting, but not completely necessary to like, just keeping you on track becomes secondary. Um, And a lot of that ties into like, you're picking up a lot of uh, documents from the crew um, a lot of logs, a lot of it's about their lives. Some of it's about things that they're uncovering that like adds to a fuller picture of the world, but doesn't necessarily like if you miss it, it's not going to, you're not going to be like wildly confused. Um, and towards the end, we get a bit more um, direct, like we take control. But in, in the early game, I also wanted to make it so that outside of like you have the, the you have like five minute like opening tutorial moment cutscene and then you're in and with the exception of uh i think the the cutscene that separates the first two biomes if you are a player who doesn't want to engage with the story you don't have to it's all out there it's you pick it up you choose to read it or not you choose to engage with it or not i wanted to be like the people who are going to be into this like obviously i'm a story guy i wouldn't have (laughs) signed on to write it if i didn't want to make it a, a pretty uh compelling story but there's a lot of people who aren't like that so we want so a thing i wanted to kind of make it was that like you'll get the setup you'll get all the basics if you start getting invested in these team members all the stuff's here you can uncover it more in any order um if you don't want to we're not going to bother you with it until kind of towards the back half where like very very important things start happening um but there were a lot of uh challenges around so because it's a metroidvania it gives it a certain other issue where we have like the proposed sequence that most most people will go through the game in a certain order but there are two ways to sequence break it that we like know about like oh if you're clever you can actually skip one world entirely and like we left them in and then since it releasing we've actually we've had people do some wild stuff to like bust through it in ways that we didn't imagine but it led to a certain problem where, okay, I'd have to account for that in the script because if the player jumps here, um, for for example, one issue is like characters start to die. This is not a spoiler. Not everybody's making it to the end of the game. But if the player jumps into a different world, are they going to miss that? Are they going to, is like that, like basically trying to figure out where the choke points where like necessary information will happen regardless of what the player does versus um you can learn certain things out of order there's a there's a certain path you go through where uh i saw somebody go through where they've picked up a bunch of journal entries foreshadowing something very strange because they went in a different order which was setting something up versus somebody else went in the reverse and it's characters reacting to the thing that the player just saw so either way that you approach it you're getting something out of it just like your interpretation of it might be different which the short version of how this all took place was a disgustingly long excel spreadsheet that makes me uh cry when i look at it of like 
every single log of places where it could go talking with the designers and Bennett about like, how is this all going to mash up? Is this too much, too little? So that was uh, a majority of the work was just breaking that into, uh, you know, making it so that the player, uh, no matter what they choose to do, will at least wind up with a solid experience with the story uh, either way. Well, I, for one, really appreciated the effort. I do mean that. Even Asteroids got a story, believe me, there is. That's me. <laughs> so, so funny, funny that you bring, you should bring up Asteroids, but like Asteroid, we were trying to figure out a way to, or we ran into an issue with like, okay, well, it, it's a Metroid that plays, it, it, we got rid of the Vania, it's not really a Vania, it's mostly a Metroid that plays like Asteroid. Asteroid. That doesn't work. Metroids, that doesn't work either. Crap. I guess we're just going to call it a Metroidvania underwater. Uh, but we would have loved to be able to, like, match, because the, the ship almost operates exactly like the asteroid ship. Dead of Sanity, which is developed by Bomb Shelter Games. What's a great name, by the way. Uh, where does it come from, the name of the studio? We started in a basement. Um, it was it was four of us, uh, four or five of us. Um, we were in our um, our friend's parents' basement at the time. Uh, it's where we would meet on a like a biweekly basis, and um, and once we and much like we spent too much time figuring out what the story and the characters were going to be for our first game and not learning how to make games, we spent a little much too much time making the studio. Uh, <laughs> but hey, I like the name, so here yeah. we are. No, I like it. I like it. Um, so yes, and what uh, platforms is uh, Depths of Sanity available for? It is currently out and available on Steam. Um, it is out of early access. It is the the full release. It is fully available on Steam, um, and plays great on the Steam Deck. Um, it's not like there's there's a second like registered for Steam Deck. Uh, we don't have enough players to get into that category yet, but um, it does. It, we get information all the time from from you specifically, Chris. That uh, it works really well on the yeah, uh, I can vouch. on the I can vouch. on the Steam Deck. Uh, we're coming to the Switch and Xbox soon. Um, although I think it's we gotta we gotta do our homework on um, it's later this of, year. <laughs> yeah, we were uh, so we we were also we've been in development for six years. Um, so if you if you do the math, um, it actually is longer than it, like it started longer than that ago. Um, uh, the current gen consoles weren't out when we started and weren't out when we were pursuing. Um, <laughs> console uh so we're approved to release on the xbox one and the playstation 4 um so we do have plans to um get on as many consoles as we can but we're definitely coming to switch and an xbox by the end of the year um xbox one most likely and i think xs uh they all they, i mean it's all the same Microsoft <laughs> aren't listening, but yes yes um, I'm not a hardware thing. guy. Listen, sorry, Mike, Microsoft, we love you, but could you name your consoles something that makes That's, sense? It's mostly that. That is mostly the issue. Is I don't know the different. I don't know which one's the fancy one and which one's the not fancy one. I know that one does 4K 60 FPS and the other one is a paperweight. But like uh, the, the fancy there one was, is there the X. Some, and the, X. The, the, okay, yeah, that's the fancy. One. See, but like S is like S class, right? And, See, that's and, it. well, it's it's a special class. Get my meaning. Ah, and X Special. is the extreme class. Extreme. There, 
there was a great tweet where some guy was like, whoever ca- whoever was the dude that decided to call it the PS2 should get a retroactive raise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right? <laughs> send them up for years. <laughs> oh, We're just well, lucky that they didn't take the battlefield approach of, I don't even know what they're doing trying to enumerate <laughs> things now. It doesn't matter. No, no. Well, indeed, Final Fantasy. Let's not go there. Now... <laughs> Um, it's been wonderful having you both on the show. It genuinely has. And um, you're more than welcome to come back to chat about whatever you're currently working on. We've had a lot of return guests over the years. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to have you back on. But until then, thank you both very much. Thank, thank you, you so for, much having for having us. It's been a great conversation. We appreciate it. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, caneandrinse.com. <laughs>